You are listening to iFanboys Talksplode with Mark Miller. Hey everyone, it's Josh Flanagan from iFanboy. Yeah, I know it's been a while since I did one of these, but I got this opportunity to speak with a uh, comic book superstar, Mark Miller, uh, all the way from Scotland. You know Mark from all sorts of things. Tons of them. The Authority, The Ultimates, Kick-Ass, uh, Nemesis, uh, Starlight, uh, Chrononauts. There are so many things. Uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of those. We're going to talk about his career. And I, I don't want to waste any more time doing this, so let's get straight to it. Hey, welcome to iFanboys Talksplode. We have returned, and uh, our special guest today, uh, all the way from Scotland, is Mark Miller. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Um, so, I-, I was I was writing questions for this, and I was thinking about what we want to talk about, and you have uh, you have quite a career. There's a lot of different things that are, that are going on, and interestingly enough, I really saw your name first start to show up when I... Right when I sort of got back into comics, everybody has a thing where they get out of comics and they get back in. But around the late 90s, I was in college and I really started reading comics again. And I saw your name uh, in Flash. Uh, and from there, you know, I, I sort of that's sort of around the beginning of you being known uh, and then a bunch of different waves in your career. Um, I mean, does it feel like you have been at this for a very long time or that it's or that it's gone really fast? Do you know, it's kind of all I've ever known, you know, like I feel I've no other skills for starters, you know, so like, I couldn't make it in any other, any other career. But like, uh, you know, even The Flash, I think had been around for about seven years by that yeah. point. You know, but, but again, it was all stuff people didn't see. Like uh, I was working in the UK from I was 19 until I was maybe 23, 24. Then I was doing books that nobody was reading in DC. And I was always just kind of keeping my head above the water. I was one of those guys who who could have disappeared at any moment and no one would have noticed. You know? So it was like I was, I was so far down the list of favorite writers or guys you would pick up the books or anything. And, um, and then the authority changed everything. I mean, I, I was getting little bumps on things like Justice League or Justice League minis and things. And people, it was, very, it was well received, you know. Yeah. Um, but it never led to any ongoing work. So I did find I would be writing scripts, for, you know, and getting paid maybe one week a month. And the other three weeks of the month, I was uh, writing proposals, you know, and, and desperately trying to get work. So um, so I think it all changed. I could put it down to the month and the day, which was March uh, 2000. You know, like the minute Authority, issue 13, hit the stands, I suddenly had a career. And it was weird because I'd been around for a decade but everybody saw that as my first book, essentially. Like even stuff I really like, like Superman Adventures, no yeah. one has read it. <laughs> yeah, and I knew about that stuff, and I knew that we, you know, we you'd been you'd worked for the the animated series and things like that. But um, I think that was when I, you know, you started to be noticed, and there was that groundswell that got to to the authority. So like during that time, which that was pretty normal, about seven, ten years or something like that, kind of toiling. It doesn't really work exactly the same way now. Yeah. But what were you? What were you? thinking during that time were you were you sort of on the edge I, I know that like Kirkman tells a story where for a while doing The Walking Dead before it blew up he was he was in a bad spot it was really <laughs> difficult uh, did you go to sort of the same thing yeah kind of I mean I always made enough money to not need to do another job mm-hmm. which was for a writer that's incredible you know I mean that's that's kind of what you want isn't it you know like if you can write stories and somebody is paying you for them that's like that's win-win isn't it because you have a good time and you, you're somehow getting paid I never made enough that I wasn't always slightly scared or like one month away from having nothing you know so so like uh, I mean I remember 
I mean, some of the companies I worked for, I mean, even DC, I think, when I was starting out, sometimes they would not pay you for like three months. And you'd maybe written a story like, you know, 12 weeks before, and you would be phoning on an international call, which was quite expensive then, you know, phoning and saying, look, has someone lost my check? And what used to happen all the time was checks were late coming out, and then they would send them to Scotland with the just amount of postage to get it to Philadelphia. You know, they never thought of it as an international check. So sometimes I'd wait a further six weeks for a check to arrive and everything, you know. So so my life was quite like that a lot and like not answering the door just in case someone was kind of like looking for, for cash or something, you know. So that's why I, it's really weird. I do think now in hindsight, it does make me appreciate that my life's been pretty good since March 2000, you know. Because you, if you've been through that, then you just think this is this is awesome. You know, I mean, if, if, if people are buying your books and you're getting royalties or they're making films or whatever, any of these things... You can't believe your luck that you're you're even able to answer your front door again. Yeah. Do you consider it luck, or or oh, I mean, you put you obviously put a lot into it. Yeah, I mean, but it's funny. I think what the luck is is that the kind of things I'm interested in writing, fortunately, are the kind of things other people are interested in. Because you can be brilliant but niche, you know. And and there's some guys I really love who who've never really found the mass market and and. And whenever they, they do something, you know, like a, a big superhero project or whatever, they're not enjoying themselves because it's not what they really want to be writing. But I think my luck is that what I'm into is what kind of everyone else is into too. Like, I mean, my, I remember years ago, somebody asked me my five favorite films and I was like, uh, Star Wars, Jaws, Superman, The Godfather. And the guy stopped me halfway through it and said, don't say that. Everybody will think you're an idiot. And, and I was like, but, but it genuinely is my favorite stuff, you know? So I think I'm very lucky that my tastes are mainstream because if if you're going to work in the in the media, I guess it's a, it's a plus. But those are all very good quality mainstream films. I'd say at least three of those are with, with, with my favorite films too. So that's that's easy to go with. But you know, I, there is a diff- there's this idea that mainstream means bad, and that's yeah. not true. I mean, The Godfather is a a great example of a movie that was yeah. incredibly mainstream, but also incredibly high quality. It's rare. <laughs> well, it, it is funny. I think if you adjust The Godfather for inflation, it made as much money as Transformers, which is which yeah. is nuts, isn't it? You know, and but but I do love that. You know, because I think people are smart. I think generally people are smart. You know, so the reason Star Wars sold a lot of tickets is because it was really good. You know, and I watched Jaws once a year. It's a it's a perfect movie, and it is, it, and it made it a lot of money because it was really good. You know, so that, as a writer, that always gives me hope. Mm-hmm. that sometimes things that are really good break out and everybody's happy. You know? Well, we're ta- we're, you're, you're in the Jaws team, so we're on the same side here. So that's just going to be easy <laughs> from here. Um, take it back, I guess, a little bit further. Actually, you know what? I just want to continue on a thing. So during that time, that sort of long paying dues period, you know, was there ever a point where you thought, uh, I don't know if I can keep doing this? Did you ever only, have a plan B? Only once. Only once, actually. And, and it was just before things took off, thank God. It was really weird because... Like I say, my whole life, I'd only wanted to do comics. So any other career, a plan B, would have been devastating to me. You know, it'd be like wanting to play football or something and, and ending up as a lawyer or whatever. You know, it had just been so different from what I'd envisioned as a kid for my adult life. Like my, my plan when I was five was to be doing what I'm doing now. I used to make my own comics when I was five and like uh, and sell them to neighbors. I used to, and it was kind of like, the way monks used to write the Bible before printing presses were invented, I would, I would hand draw each one individually and sell the copies around the neighbours like, and, and do a new version of it and spend a week drawing it up again, you know, that kind of thing, you know. So it was mental. And my, my dad eventually started photocopying them for me and, uh, and that was revolutionary for me, you know. But like, um, you know, so it had been a passion my entire life and the idea 
it just wasn't happening for me, you know, maybe around about 1999, things still hadn't quite taken off. And I just had my first kids then as well, my oldest daughter. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, I I really need to kind of make this work now. You know, it's it's not just me, you know, it's I have a little person that I have to feed and clothe, you know, and, uh, you know, I I don't want her looking like the smelly kid at school, you know, like she's, I, I need to do something here. So, as a little plan B, what I did was uh, I wrote a proposal for a television series and I had no contacts in that world at all. I didn't even know the name of who I was supposed to send it to. I literally wrote commissioning editor at the top you know, of an envelope. And what I did was I, I posted it off and then about a week later I got a phone call and they bought it. It was really weird, you know, and like uh, I thought, oh my God, this is really easy, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> it, may, it may well have been good, but there was definitely a component of luck there, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or it was a prank. It was a prank someone was playing you know yeah. but but they called up and they bought a series from me and I was like oh my god you know this is this is fantastic you know this this you know like I say I'd spent most of the previous two years writing proposals for DC Comics mm-hmm. and there was this dreadful editor there you know who used to just toy with freelancers you know just out of boredom you know and I remember I rewrote a Phantom Stranger proposal 30 times and people were saying to me, are you mad? And I was like, I need to get this gig. You know, I really need it. I need to get this perfect. Not realizing the guy was just sitting back stroking his, like, white cat, you know, just getting paid on DC's dime just to have a little fun. And he actually said, oh, it was terrible. And I, I, he actually said to a friend of mine, he says, oh, I, I'm just messing with Miller. I have no intention of commissioning this thing, you know. And I, was, I heard this after, like, 18 months, you know. And, like, um but I remember selling the thing to Channel 4 in the UK and, and just getting a check and I thought, this is amazing, this is this is really great. And this was maybe about two months before Authority launched um, in uh, March 2000. And then luckily Authority happened and I was able to not do the television thing, which sounds weird. Like mm-hmm. most people, I think, would assume that you would want to get into television, but for me it's always been about comics. So I literally just sidestepped the whole TV thing. And that, that department actually imploded uh, in the television uh, company that uh, I'd been dealing with. But like, um, but I'd already made my decision. I was actually off doing comics, what I'd always wanted. Mm-hmm. So after that sort of crisis of faith, did you do anything differently in terms of how you approached the work? Like, did you, did you buckle down? It sounded like you were working pretty hard ahead of that. Or, you know, your, your daughter's there. You've got, <laughs> you've, got, you've got to definitely deal with it. Did, did sort of your approach to the work change? Totally. And it's so funny. I mean, for anybody who's listening and thinking about being a writer, this is the best piece of advice I can give because I discovered this kind of accidentally. Like I wrote the first issue of The Authority when I thought I was leaving comics because you have to remember this was a book that was being published by, you know, a, sort of a company within DC at Wildstorm. You know, it was no guarantee of future income for me, you know. I was an untried writer and believe it or not, at that time, Frank Whiteley was a very new artist, you know, so... Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch leaving that book was almost like cancel me, you know, like the minute they left, it was like, okay, here's two guys, you know, you don't care about coming onto this book. Um, so there was, there was absolutely no guaranteed income, you know, so I still was thinking, okay, this, this may not work, but what I'm going to do is if this is the last superhero comic I write, I'm going to do the comic I want to read. And it sounds so incredibly obvious, but I'd never done that until that point when I was writing you know, the Phantom Stranger proposals or Secret Society of Supervillain proposals, all these things. I was thinking, okay, what what would the DC editors want? What might DC readers want? You know? And I was trying to tailor it towards a specific trend, which in the late 1990s was very retro 60s, you know, just the way these things tend to move in cycles. And I was I was trying to anticipate as opposed to actually thinking, what do I want to read? Mm-hmm. And 
luckily, like I said, what I wanted to read is what other people did too, and this, the sales on the book went up, and uh, and it just seemed to catch fire, and that led to kegs at Marvel and everything. So, but that, that was a life changing moment. The minute I I produced a book for me, then by osmosis, that excitement, you know, it's contagious. Other people went it too. That's uh, that's literally the same story of sort of with the legend of like Stan Lee's Fantastic Four. I mean, that was the idea that he'd been doing all these things, and his wife was like, "Before you quit, just do the one book you want to do." Oh, I, th- I didn't realize that. Yeah, that, that's the sort of I'm just a legend. That's <laughs> <laughs> a good legend, you know, because and it's true. It's true. When, a man without hope is a man without fear, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that does make you do the kind of stuff that you just think, you know, what the hell? This this may work or it may not. Who cares? You know, I'll I'll enjoy it. You know, yeah. there's a certain and, uh, bit of recklessness that I think can get rewarded with that. That if you're worried, then you're not going to. But if you you just want to jump, then then you can get a lot done. Well, I, I think I think sometimes the best creativity um, comes in those moments when there's nothing to lose. Like uh, if you look at Marvel, for example, I think Marvel's most fertile period over the last um, fifteen years was the five years following near bankruptcy. Absolutely. You know, I mean that that period, Marvel was absolutely on fire, and it was because they had nothing to lose. You know, I, for, I forget what the share price was, but it was down to something like a, a dollar a share or something. It was, it was in the pennies, and I remember looking yeah. at that, going, "I should do, I should buy some of that. It'd be funny." That was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, whenever a company's fifty dollars a share, then they're not going to take risks. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever so so the risk taking time was really amazing. You know, you had books like Ecstatic, you had Kevin Smith on Daredevil, Grant Morrison on X Men. You know, Brian Bendis coming in and revolutionizing. Spider-Man and everything, and and it was such an incredible Wild West environment to be in. And I, and I, you know there was some rubbish in there as well, but I would say the hit rate was generally very high, probably very similar to the early 1980s Marvel as well that was just coming out of that 70s recession mm-hmm. and just thinking let's take a risk on these guys like Frank Miller and so on doing comics that you've never seen before. So it was a good time. No, absolutely. I think we could use another one of those. <laughs> a recession, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I want to take it back a little bit. And when you first, I mean, you said you've, you've wanted to do comics since you were a little kid. What was it that you loved about comics uh, at first? What, what was the thing that, that made you fall in love with them? Do you know the funny thing is it goes so far back for me that I can't remember not loving them. So weirdly, I can't answer that because like, I've, I've, I've been in love with the characters as long as I can remember existing. You know, like I, I can't remember not knowing who Superman is or Batman or Spider-Man or whatever. I remember very early comics of mine just because the the covers are so so poignant for me you know Um, so I can remember the first ones that I had but I can't remember what drew me in I just thought I have my dinner around 5 o'clock you know I I, I go to school around 9am I read comics you know that's it's just part of my day okay well let me take it forward then as you got older and you approached your your, I mean you started making comics professional comics very young yeah I guess when was it then you you started to appreciate the form of comics the the way that they actually work the the craft of them Do you know what? that's probably down to Alan Moore mm-hmm. you know when I, when I was um, thirteen, just about the age that you're getting out of comics I think I, I didn't quite get out of them. I remember feeling I should you know when I went to high school like over here we go to high school when we were eleven or twelve I remember giving all my comics to charity when I was eleven or twelve I had like a yard sale kind of thing, and I got rid of everything. I kept one or two very special ones, you know, ones I really loved, and I thought, now I'm a man, I'm 11 or 12, you know, I'm getting rid of my comics, I'm probably going to get married now, <laughs> you know, so I had this whole sort of ritual, it was like a rite of passage, I was like, goodbye Superman, you know, you served me well, you know, and then about 
a month later, I was like, I need to get all of those comics back, you know? And it became an, an obsession. Like the next couple of years, I was just tracking down everything I'd, I'd sold for this charity uh, yard sale thing, you know? And, um, and it was weird, like, I think probably at an age where most people would give, give up, then I discovered Alan Moore. I was, I was 13, and Alan Moore wasn't quite famous at this point. He, he was uh, just starting on Swamp Thing. It, it was, it, issue 26 of Swamp Thing had just come out. So Alan's first one was issue 20, I think. So he'd been doing that a few months, and he wasn't quite a superstar yet. He was just kind of very respected in the British scene. People loved him on Warrior and Miracle Man and everything. And I got talking to him. Um, at this convention where I didn't know anyone I was a kid from a small town and I was at this convention that only maybe had 200 guests at it, you know 200 uh, attendees in a hotel and I just started speaking to him and it was back in the days where he was so new that I could talk to him for an hour and nobody interrupted it was really weird and I just asked him you know what have you got coming up and blah 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 and I was just excited because a British guy was working in DC and he told me about Swamp Thing and I was like alright you know and like uh, he told me he and Dave Gibbons were planning a Superman annual which would come out a couple of years later and he told me the plot of it and he's, he had a map of the Fortress of Solitude which he was using to plot out the story and everything and I was like this is amazing you know and I, I was just so inspired by the idea of a British guy being into it and it was kind of a, the, the realisation that I could maybe do this as a job like a guy from this rock that we live on over here you know mm-hmm. could work in the states which seemed incredibly glamorous and what he did was so nice um i remember i think it was about 35p which is about 60 cents um and i didn't have any money left i'd only come along with the equivalent of a dollar or two dollars or something and he said to me why don't you check out my swap thing and i was like well i have no cash left at all and, and he bought it for me and and he signed it and i still have it you know and he and and i always took that as kind of like Willy Wonka handing you the golden ticket. Kind of it really thing. is. When you said it was Alan Moore, I thought you meant you read a book, but no, it was actually Alan Moore. Alan Moore, yeah, and he, and he gave me the book, and I went home, and I was like, one day, you know, I'll, I'll see this man again, you know, and I'll, I'll be a comic writer too. And, and I, I sent my first proposal into DC then, you know, um, about two weeks later mm-hmm. uh, when I was 13, and, and I got a really lovely 15-page rejection letter, but it was wow. actually... Because I said to them, I'm very interested in becoming a writer, an artist, an anchor, a letterer, a colorist, or possibly an editor, you know. And could you give me information on uh, <laughs> you know, all of these things? And they were so nice. It was Dick Giordano's brother-in-law, who was the talent coordinator at the time, a guy called Sal Amendola. And he wrote, I still have that letter as well, because it was on DC-headed paper. I remember just being so excited when it landed through my letterbox. I was like, this is amazing. You know? And again, I took that as, you know, this is my destiny. One day I'll, I'll work here, you know? So if we skip forward then, I mean you've been you've been in comics a long time. You you understand how they work better than than most humans who are walking the earth. <laughs> what is it that that comics do for you now because you could have stopped doing them. You could you could make a living doing other things, but you're still making these comics. So what is it about them? I I just love them, you know. I mean, I I'll tell you there's there's two two massive things. One is I love the complete creative freedom that comics have because having worked in movies and everything, I, I see the restrictions, you know. I mean, the, the number of people involved in a movie is incredible. There's 300 people or something involved in a movie. And then there's guys who come in and say, look, we, we cannot afford to shoot that scene. Is there any way we can clip that down, you know? And compromise is inevitable. And I've been very lucky. My four films, I'm, I'm really, really happy with them, the four that have been done so far. But 
I can see how it can go wrong as well. And I've seen it happen to friends where just somebody on a whim who you don't know can say, oh, I don't really like the way this is going and change everything, you know. And, and you can end up with something you're not happy with because once you've signed the, the movie rights away, you, you, you have to give up a certain amount of control. What's amazing about comics is that what is in your head is on the page just a few months later, which in itself is exciting. And it's very autonomous outside of a novel. It's the most autonomous art form, you know. So there's there's the writer, the artist, and a piece of paper. And and I love that. And budget is never a consideration. So that's cool. The other thing is, I, you know, this is going to sound mad, but I, I just like having it. You know, like I'm, I'm sitting in my office just now. I've got an old 1950s spinner rack that's filled with 900 of my favorite comics, which I spent two days thinking about what I was going to put in there, you know. And, like, you know, and I like it. There is... This is the one thing that nobody ever says anymore, but but there kind of is a nice sense of like looking at a run of your of, of comics and thinking, yeah, that feels pretty good. I've got the complete set of them. You know, my my inner ten year old, you know, still feels very satisfied by that. <laughs> and it's it, it's just you're either into this or you're not, and I've been into it my whole life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I suppose that you, you made some comments about digital comics once that made everybody freak out. It's not hard to make people freak out on the internet, obviously, <laughs> yeah. but I assume that that. The, the physical object really really does it for you it does I mean I, I've become a digital convert I was very suspicious just from an economic point of view that what I was worried about was if you look at the comic stores in the in the west in particular you know a very sizable chunk of them are hanging by their fingernails you know like there's so many friends of mine who say if I drop 10% I'm get out of business mm-hmm. you know like um, and, and it's always a concern I mean the industry goes through ups and downs it always has always well but I remember just when people were saying mm, you know the, I'm thinking I, I'm not sure if I'll be here next year suddenly there was the advent of digital and I think this was maybe around about 2011 2012 that I questioned the model the thing that freaked me out was I didn't think they were going to stay at the same price as print I, I thought that two ninety nine thing just wouldn't work as a, a digital thing, and they were maybe going to try and do them for one ninety nine, one fifty, ninety nine cents, even you know, um, and do a day and date release with comic stores. So I thought the last thing comic stores need right now is competition. This was, I think, this was two thousand and eleven, and I was just nervous about it. And I held my books back, and I purposely did it, I think, for two, two to three years, and I held them back, and I just wanted to see what happened first, like. I've always hung around comic stores. A lot of my friends are retailers. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't feel very gung-ho about saying, okay, here's an alternative place to buy your comics, you know. And I, I, I was watching friends who are fans um, stop buying print and start buying digital. And that freaked me out because I thought, if we lose 10% and if they drop the price point and we lose 20 or 30% or something, that's a lot of comic stores going out of business. And the comic stores have been our lifeblood for two generations, you know. So, so I just thought, I mean, I, I'm just relatively cautious on the on the fiscal side of things and I just wanted to have a look at it so I looked at it over uh, I think about you know 10 financial quarters and uh, I think it was 2012 to about 2014 and I, I looked at it and it grew incrementally I think in one of those quarters I think it shrunk and I think the rest actually grew um, so digital actually wasn't going to be competing if anything it was bringing people in because when I spoke to retailers what they said was their worst fears weren't realised and what was happening was people were maybe picking something up on digital and then coming in and buying the trades you know, or, or coming in and buying the set because they wanted the paper and people generally were buying digital because they didn't live near a comic store and I thought who am I to deprive someone 
of their comics because they live 200 miles from a comic store, you know? Yeah. So I thought, you know what, let's have a go. And, and it's great, you know, but, but I, you know, I, I feel, I'm always going to say I was right, you know, but like, uh, I do feel I was right to be a little cautious because, you know, we live in an ecosystem, you know, and you, you don't want to mess with it sometimes. A fragile one. And that's, I that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, I think at the end of the day, I feel like they're two different businesses. And I think that that's yeah. what people didn't realize at first. They're yeah. kind of customers. They had, you know, one customer wanted the thing they could hold and one person wanted the thing they, you know, was convenient. And those weren't the same people. Exactly. I mean, what I was very nervous about was that it was the same person. Mm-hmm. And the only thing to do then is shave sales off print. And, and I'm so pleased that was wrong. Yeah. yeah. I think it's been good for everyone. Um, shifting gears, I guess, a little bit. Now, one of the things I notice as I look over your, uh, your oeuvre, especially your, your creator-owned stuff, um, mm-hmm. I think that there are a handful of guys who are very good at, at picking collaborators. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's one thing that when a lot of people are breaking in, they're going to get any artist they can to work on their thing. Yeah. Now, you weren't quite at that point, but I, I've, you've, I feel like you've been very conscientious about the people you're working with. Obviously, you know, you've worked with really big names over and over, but it's like it's consistent. Um, is that... It's, I, I have to assume it's more than just a vanity thing, but it's conscientious. It's like you need to, you know that that in order to sell things, that you know the art has to be at the top of the game over and over. I mean, is how important is that to you? To me, it's, it's actually not so much from a sales point of view because mm-hmm. um, sometimes I'll pick people who have uh, a pretty small track record on sales. I just pick people who are really good, it, and I've got. And you it's know, not so much sales, even. It's it's you know, there's guys just uh, um, Duncan Fergredo or something like that, where, yeah. where he's you know he's not a huge seller, but he's if you if you talk to artists, like oh that guy's a, he's a master, you know that kind of thing. And I, I think I see that across all of the people that you're working with in one form or another, which is which is pretty impressive. It's, it's amazing. I mean, when I look at the back page of the Mellow World books and I see all the front covers of all the books that I've worked on. Uh, even I'm constantly impressed by the level of artists that I'm working with. Like, these guys are good, you know. I mean, if you compare the Mellow World books, you know, sort of pound for pound with a Marvel or a DC lineup of books, you know, like every guy I'm working with would be their best guy, you know, pretty much, you know, whether it's Frank Quitely or, you know, you know, any of these guys are amazing. And like, like I say, I, I don't look at their sales. What I do is I just think, who would be the best possible guy to draw this? Like, for example, Starlight, I wanted to do a book that was uh, – that, that, that had a slightly retro Alex Toth vibe, but at the same time had a European sensibility. Like sci-fi is a funny one to do in comics. It doesn't always quite work, you know? So the vision that I had in my head was something that didn't look very American. And Toth had a very a very European, a, a very 60s European vibe to his stuff. Um, and and I, I had a lot of Mobius in my head because that's generally, as a European, what I think of when I think of science fiction. So, um, so I wanted something that blended both of them. So I was never going to go to like one of the image founders or something like that. You know, like it just wouldn't work for what, what I had in my head. And Goran Parlov's books uh, by Marvel standards sell sell generally quite modestly. You know, it tends to although, although I think they're actually Marvel's best books. Um, you know, they, they they tend to sell a little less than you know what you would get on Spider Man or whatever. So I uh, I just thought he was the perfect guy for it. Like. I couldn't see it as anyone other than him drawing the books. And the same thing with Kick-Ass. I mean, I said to John Romita back in 2006, I've got an idea for this thing. It was going to be based around Hit Girl at the time. And I said, I'd love you to draw this book. And if you don't draw it, I'm not going to do it. And he said, well, I'm under contract for two more years. I've got to do this stuff. And I was like, I'll wait. And Kick-Ass sat in my drawer for two years until Johnny was ready to start drawing it in 2008. You know, I think he started late 2007. So... 
I don't know, it's, it's kind of like casting an actor. I find this as well. I mean, I'm involved quite deeply in casting as well. And for Starlight at the moment, we're talking about people and uh, Chrononauts, we're talking about people. And once you have someone in your head, it's very hard to think of someone else. You know, sometimes things don't go to plan and you don't get the actor you wanted. And it's the same with artists too. So anybody else would feel like a compromise. So I, I just, I pick the guys I, I love and feel right for the project. Was there a point, and I and I, I asked this because I, there's a point where I had been talking about and writing about comics for so long that it really clicked for me what made a great artist. Yeah. Again, it's not it's difficult to to say what that is objectively. There's a oh that that person has it. it Goran Parlov is an excellent example. Not a household name, but as soon you know when I was reading Fury Max, I I thought oh my god, he's yeah. an amazing yeah. cartoonist. I love that book. Was there a point for you? And you started working really young. Was there a point for you where you really felt you understood the mechanics of comic book art and and sort of what works and what doesn't that you can make those kind of decisions? Kind of. I guess it's like any any trades. I mean, mm-hmm. comics. Movies, carpentry, you know, plumbing, all these things are just traits, you know, and like, and as you do them more, you tend to get better, you know, and you tend to kind of see what's wrong with things. You can look at something and analyze it and see very quickly what's wrong with it. And, and it's a skill you pick up. And I find when I'm in story meetings um, in, in Hollywood, even though I'm relatively new to Hollywood, um, I've had such kind of training and what makes a story work and what doesn't make it work that I find I can be quite incisive and just sort of look at something and say what's hap- what feels good about it, what doesn't, whether it's in the edits after a movie's been made or, or at script stage. Um, you know, so I think just over the years you pick up these skills. I think I, I always knew good art, but I think the type of artist who works well with you specifically is a very different thing too. Sure. Like, for, ex- for example, a guy like Jim Lee is fantastic. You know, you put him with a Jeff Loeb or a Jeff Johns or something, and it looks amazing. But that type of art wouldn't work with my type of story. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I need guys who do the beat-by-beat beat thing, and it's quite hard to describe, but I need somebody who will do roughly four panels a page, and it, it flows in a certain way, you know? And, and Jim is more of a kind of splashy, you know, a big image kind of guy. And uh, Marshall Vestry is like that too, you know? And, and they're, they're fantastic draftsmen and really great. And with certain writers, they'd, they'd be amazing. But for me, the, the couple of occasions I've worked with artists in that style, it tends not to work out very well. You know, whereas you take somebody who's very good at writing for, for those kind of artists and give them a Steve Dillon or a Frank Quitely or something, and it doesn't quite gel, you know? So I, I, I don't know. I think you just have to find too much for you. It's like it's like dating someone or it's, it's like a friendship or something. You know, there's, there's, there's a chemistry when you put two creative people together that either works or it doesn't. I mean, a perfect example... You know, would be something like that movie, The Mexican. You know, like everybody's like, "Oh, it's going to be amazing!" It's you know, Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt. How could this be amazing? And it's terrible, you know. And it's and it's uh, chemistry is just really important. And if you get on with them personally, I find it helps too. I mean, most of these guys are my friends that I work with, so the, the collaboration's fun. I remember uh, the first time that kind of clicked for me. I think uh, Bendis uh, was talking one time about working with different artists and he goes, you know, yeah. I, I just couldn't work with Tony Harris. There's nothing's wrong with his art. And I was, and I clicked, I was like, Oh, I totally understand that. <laughs> Do you know what? It's funny. Cause again, I, I find the opposite that I love Tony. Yeah. Like Tony, Tony's amazing. Like, I, I'll tell you a funny thing. Like he and I, um, had been doing that comic war heroes. Yeah. It started back in 2008. And the first time we met, we hadn't even spoken on the phone. The first time we met was in New York at the beginning, I think it was August or something, the beginning of the War Heroes tour. And Image had booked us into doing this signing that ran 
from New York all the way through all these southern states, up into LA and then finally up in San Francisco. And I think it was about nine days or something we were going to be together and we had never met until we sat down at the Midtown Comics table, shook hands and then started signing copies of the book, you know. And we got on like a house of fire. Like we just got on so well. And I remember by by the ninth day or whatever, I remember Tony and I were standing It's okay, I have kids, it's fine. Oh yeah, that's. I think that's... Kid 3.0, that's, uh, that's the latest one, you know. Um, she's squealing outside. Um, yeah, we've, we were in the airport together and, like, uh, we were saying goodbye to each other and it was like Mowgli saying goodbye to Baloo at the end of Jungle Book. You know, we were we were so sad because we actually had really got on great over the course of that week and a bit, you know. So I, I don't know, sometimes the most uh, surprising friendships are merging comics. You know? Yeah, I've, and I've heard that story from other creators who, you know, they, they didn't... I, I, I think I was around when, when Jason Aaron first met... Um, jm or gara is his scalp collaborator or yeah. uh, i've heard other stories like that where people just get along you know scott snyder and, and greg capullo are fast friends now they weren't at first yeah. but they were open about that but anyway they it's it's really neat how the that collaboration somewhere somehow is organic and like if you can work together that way i mean I've, met, I, I've people i've done comics with that nobody has had a chance to read like we get along really well i've made really good friends doing that so i like yeah. that part about the process a lot um Let's talk a little bit about about process, about scripting, about how you approach a comic and make make a book. Uh, you know, you, you said you know the Jim Lee kind of style isn't necessarily working for you. How do you how do you start? Like you've got an idea for a book, where do you begin? Always with a drawing. Like when I was starting out, I would sort of doodle as well, you know, and, and sort of try and sell stuff as an artist. Like I would do um, when I was a teenager, I tried to sell strips to newspapers and things, you know. So I would I would draw that stuff as well, and. For me, I'll, I'll, I'll sit and draw the characters and then the, maybe draw a scene that the characters are in and then organically grow the story out of that. So, for example, Wolverine, Old Man Logan, I, I was just drawing a picture of Wolverine, you know, as you do, you know, sitting in your chair drawing Wolverine. And I drew this picture, but he had grey cropped hair. He didn't have, you know, that kind of weird hairstyle Wolverine's got. That we have no word for except for Wolverine yes. hair. Nobody in real life has that. Yeah. Nope. It's, it's like a hat. <laughs> so like uh, I you know I was drawing this picture of this cropped hair as a well money kind of looking Wolverine and he looked kind of old and I was drawing lines around his face and then I, I just wrote beside it hasn't popped his claws in 50 years and then I was you know it was the whole Unforgiven things coming through and, and then I was like oh why hasn't he popped his claws and then I thought well what would be the one reason Wolverine wouldn't pop his claws it would be because he killed someone he loved you know and then I thought well maybe he killed everyone he loved and why would that have happened you know and the, the, the story worked its way backwards I tend to reverse engineer stories from a drawing you know so so that then I thought well he would have to you know have his, his senses completely annulled by someone like Mysterio or whatever or Mastermind or something like this you know so I, the whole story story then came from that drawing and I worked my way backwards. Kick-Ass was the same. I drew a picture of a kid in a wetsuit confronting bank robbers kind of thing and they shoot him and he ends up in hospital on his first night. And like, you know, that that tells you everything you need to know about Kick-Ass and you work your story backwards from there. So that's my process every time. I, I don't know if anyone else does that, but you know, my office is filled with little post-it notes of violent scenes like that, you know, so, and uh, stuck all over the walls. You know, it looks like a place the, the police would break into. So you have things pretty well thought out before you approach scripting. Oh my god! I, especially now, I, I've completely changed the way I work. Um, I think around about 2012, around about the time I was starting Jupiter's Legacy, I spent eight weeks working out the backstory 
Um, never mind the plot. I spent eight weeks working out the backstory, and I, I must have looked like a mental patient. You know, I was standing with post-it notes all over my office, and then into my dining room, and I had post-it notes for eight weeks. And I was like, okay, so his mum didn't get on with his aunt, <laughs> things like that. And I really had this gigantic backstory, which my agent said to me when we were waiting on Frank Quietly to draw book two. He said, like, tell that story, and that's what Jupiter's Circle became. You know, the the story about the previous generation and the people who are in Jupiter's legacy. So. So, like, uh, yeah, I work it out in the most intense detail. And I would say my books since 2012 have been my best my best ones. You know, they're the ones I feel are stronger. And I think it's because the plot is so tight. You know? Well, I actually have, I have a question about that specifically because for me, there is a shift in your work. Mm-hmm. There is there is definitely – there's the the last sort of handful of books that you, that you did, Jupiter's Legacy Circle, uh, Starlight – I'm try. I try really hard not to call it Stardust because I just my mouth wants to. So <laughs> make sure I get it right. I'm just apologizing ahead of time. Uh, you know they they had a different feel. If you had told me, if you told me previously how I could pick out a Mark Miller book, I I could have, and I wouldn't have written these as you know I wouldn't have thought of these as Mark Miller books. They seem like a different thing. So what happened with you in there? I mean, do you see them that way? <laughs> kind of, you know. But you know the funny thing is the stuff that is darkest or most violent or whatever or most shocking that's the stuff that people tend to buy more of you know and and it's the ones that they talk about so even though something like nemesis for example is only four issues and maybe 10 weeks work or something um people will be talking about it two or three years later or they'll be making a film of it or something and when the movie comes out in 2017 or whatever they'll be talking about it all over again but it's maybe just been 10 weeks work for me back in 2009 or something you know so so it's quite interesting that I can work on something like The Ultimates, which is 26 issues long, I think. I and like, say 26 years old, and I got really scared. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's not that bad, is it? It took 26 years to do it. Yeah. But, like, um, <laughs> but 26 issues long, and, uh, you know, there isn't even the word damn, I think. that You, you couldn't say God damn. Sure. And you know, it was, and you weren't allowed to show blood or anything. You know, we made it, we made it have a realistic vibe without actually doing anything uh, mature. In it, the book was aimed at a PG audience the whole time, and so was X Men. And ninety percent of my Marvel stuff was like that. Um, but weirdly, people don't remember that. What people remember is maybe the slightly more violent things. So, so it's interesting. But I've always done romantic or, or sort of nostalgic stuff or whatever. Like Marvel nineteen eighty five is probably the most sure, sort of nostalgic thing I've, I've ever done. You know, uh, but because it didn't have a huge audience compared to something like Wanted or whatever, you know, then people just don't, they probably don't even realize I've, I've done it, you know, so so it's interesting. But what, what's happening now, what's pretty cool is I think the trend since about 2010, 2011 has been to go more upbeat and light. So I think the market tends to kind of go for stuff now that's a bit more like what I'm wanting to do at the moment. So, for example, I think a book like Kick-Ass as it was written in 2008, wouldn't work. And, uh, and at the moment, you know, like there's a, there was a shift around 2010 where I found as a reader, I was more interested in stuff that was less badass and more funny and exciting, you know? So Guardians of the Galaxy epitomizes what I'm into at the moment, whereas The Dark Knight epitomized what I was into back in the noughties. I, I definitely have that, that same kind of feeling. I, 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 think i i would be reductive to say it doesn't have anything to do with having kids but for me there's definitely a uh, there's a line there's where i'm like oh i don't that stuff makes me uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> but it really does and it's weird like if i was writing something now i don't think i'd be very interested in writing something violent like violence doesn't especially interest me but i know i will again at some point you know i might think in five years time 
going to be cool to do a really violent, badass book, you know? But just at the moment, what I'm interested in is something that's kind of fun, kind of jokey, adventurous, you know? Um, but in the same way that I love Robert Zemeckis and I love Steven Spielberg, but equally I love Quentin Tarantino and Sam Peckinpah, you know? But, but, but there are moments where somebody captures the zeitgeist, you know? And I think right now, the zeitgeist is... But in a post-Guardians world now, which I, which I love. Yeah. yeah. It's very fun. Um... Speaking, I guess, of the sort of different kind of comics, um, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard this, and I'm not saying it, but I know that I've heard it said about you that a lot of books uh, were just made for as adaptation vehicles and things like that. Um, yeah. Now, I know from being a comic book reader and, and looking at, say, the stuff you've done for the last, you know, these are comics. You know, they're, yeah. they're made as comics. They've got A-plus artists on them. They're not, you know, how do you feel about that? How do you think about it? How do you react to it? it honestly, it drives me nuts. I mean, the... <laughs> The thing that I always say to people, I mean, for starters, number one is, what is a movie? You know, it's yeah. like you know, like a movie is a story, you know, told with words and pictures and music or whatever. A comic is a story, you know. So a comic can be anything, and a movie can be anything. And you, you know, like Grand Bud- I always say, Grand Budapest Hotel and Transformers and you know, GI Joe are all movies. They they're all quite different. You know, they've, they've all got a, a different vibe. Um, so you can't do something that somebody says, ah, that looks very like a movie to me. You know, I think I'll make that one into a film. You just tell a good story. And what's interesting, actually, is I would say the opposite. I think when people do a book that you cannot imagine in a million years would be a movie, that's when they pick it up as a movie. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at stuff like Ghost World or Scott Pilgrim or Kick-Ass, I mean, Kick-Ass is a weird comic. You know, it's a really weird comic. It's, it seems incredibly niche, although it's sold well. You know, the the actual idea of it is, is it's not a winner. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, think about it. I mean, it's, it's the complete opposite of what makes a superhero book generally sell. You know, it's a guy with no powers, a crap costume, <laughs> and he always gets beaten up and everything. You know, so, I mean, and, you know, he's jerking off and, like, the first issue and everything, you know, and, uh, and you've got a foul-mouthed ten-year-old, you know. And I think... Every single studio in town turned it down when we took it out. You know, like nobody wanted to make that movie, which is why Matthew went off and made it independently with his own private financing and then sold it to a studio once people kind of got what the idea was. You know, so if anything, I've kind of done the opposite. And I would say all of these things uh, you wouldn't imagine ever as a movie. And when you see guys coming up with a plot where they say, oh, this is kind of Jurassic World meets Avatar, you know, <laughs> like those, <laughs> those are bad, <laughs> it's bad comics that then become bad movies, and so they, ne- they would never become a movie, you know, like, you, I see people doing that stuff all the time, but, but you know, again, even Starlight, I mean, I sold Starlight before the first issue came out, I sold it to Fox, and again, on paper, you know, who who would care? Generally, you would imagine like only I would care about this kind of thing. You know, like an old Buck Rogers kind of type space hero. You know, in his sixties. You know, coming out of retirement to one last hurrah. You know, like good luck selling that to a studio. You know, but you know, you know like um, so. I think what I do is I just write what I want to write. And the other reason um, it's crazy, you know, to suggest that. I would do it to sell movies is I give half the money away. Like my deal is is crazy. Like I've been a producer now for eleven years, so my deal um with the studios has obviously subsequently gone up every year. Like if I'm if I'm selling something, I I get executive producer money and I get points on the back end of what the movie does. But now the last kind of maybe four deals that I've done, 
Um, I also get a percentage of first dollar gross, which is great. You know, I mean, that can be much more money than the the rights, the movie rights money. And I, as far as I know, I'm the only creator who halves that with with the artist. I half everything with the artist because I've just got this philosophy that you know it's like being a mum and a dad. You know, it's like, you know, it's the two of you to, to to make this thing. You know, so I don't want to be showing up in a helicopter, you know, to a premiere, and the artist is you know sort of crawling along the ground, starving, and all that. You know, I, I think you don't want to make Sean Murphy mad. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, so I just think it's only fair. Everybody loves 50-50. You know, my agent said to me, are you crazy? He said, why don't you at least make it 51-49? And I was like, what's the point of that? You know, I said, like, I, I want it to be 50-50, then everybody's happy. And, like, um, and, and you know, if I, if, I, if I just sold them directly as movies, I would have all the money instead of half the money, you know? Um, and Chrononauts is a perfect example. I mean, I'd, I'd sold that as a film before I even started writing it as a comic. Because three years previous, I was going to direct it as a short movie for Ridley Scott, and like, um, yeah, it was going to be a ten-minute movie, believe it or not. And uh, you know, but then that fell through, and I ended up telling the head of Universal about it over lunch, and he said to me, "I'll buy it as a movie." And I said, "Well, let me do it as a comic. I, I don't see it as a film. I see it as a comic." And then he subsequently, you know, sort of bought it by the end of lunch. You know, <laughs> now, this might be me coming from comics, but. As a person who comes from comics, how long is it till you felt comfortable having lunch with the head of Universal? Do you know what I've, I've, you know what I think what's quite nice about being Scottish actually is that like uh, at all, you know, any Americans impressive to me? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, I feel as if you all know Batman and things like that because you've got these cool accents, you know. So like I, I'm daunted just getting off the plane out there, you know, and and uh, and I just see everyone as the same, you know, like. There's an expression over here that we're all Jock Tamsin's bairns, right? Which will make absolutely no sense to anyone. But the idea is that we're all just flesh and blood, you know? So so I've, I've never sort of walked into a situation and thought, you know, I, I'm not worthy to be in this, this place or anything, you know? So it's just, to me, it's just fun, you know? I mean, and I especially see, like, um, anything that comes from the comic is just gravy. Like, there's video games of some of these books and there's merchandise of Kick-Ass and all that and Kingsman and everything um, and I, I see movies a bit like that although I'm a massive film fan I just see hey this is hilarious They've, they're making a film with this comic book I've done but for me it's always about the comic mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I, and I know we're going to wrap up pretty soon um, a number of years ago uh, there was the famous uh, Kirkman Bendis uh, tussle in the, the Kirkman manifesto about doing creator own work getting away from Marvel and DC but it could have just as easily been the Miller Manifesto uh, had you <laughs> recorded it. What do you? I mean, when did you sort of see this as the writing on the wall? Like, I have to make my own things. I, I have to get away from from doing these other things. Um, and and I, I can't imagine you're not happy with the result of that choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, I mean, there was there was actually a moment I can put it again down to a specific phone call, and I was talking to Stan Lee, believe it or not, you know, and and it was um, I was interviewing him for a magazine. And there was a, a, a magazine over here, there still is, which is great, called SFX. And uh, they had an issue where they had guys who are doing a job now interviewing the people who did that job when they were kids. So they had, like, um, Russell T. Davis uh, speaking to the women who used to produce Doctor Who, you know, when, they, when, when Russell was doing Doctor Who, when he just rebooted it. And, like, um, they, they had me contact Stan Lee and interview Stan and talk to him about comics. And we had a great chat, and it was actually really exciting. You know, I mean, phoning Stan, I'd never spoken to him before, um, except once at a signing. And phoning Stan um, 
was like phoning Galactus or something. I mean, this just was, it was amazing. It was so exciting. And, uh, and I recorded the call and I listened to it about three times, you know, not even just to transcribe it. I was just excited to be talking to Stan. The best best moment I ever had in this job when we were doing it full time is we went to Stan's office and recorded a a show with him. And, and he was, and he was so, uh, lively and like he, we were batting back and forth and kind of, you know, making jokes to each other and, and making fun of each other a little bit and having, and it was, it's one of the greatest days uh, I've ever oh. had. So I know that feeling, obviously. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. l- like I went to the Playboy Club in 2008 um, when I was doing that uh, War Heroes uh, tour, you know, when I was in Vegas mm-hmm. and um, I was talking to the guy in the place he'd invite. It was really exciting, actually. I, I checked into the Playboy Club, I checked into my hotel and the Playboy Club was at the top of the hotel, you know, the Pam's Hotel or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a Playboy envelope left for me and I opened it up thinking, what the hell is this? And they said, hey, we're big fans of your boots. Um, do you want to come upstairs and come to a party tonight? And I was like, they knew I was in town doing a signing and I was like, this is amazing. This is so great, you know? So I, I headed up and they told me that Stan Lee had been there the week before and I was clocking off about 3 or 4 a.m. or something drunk and they were saying, oh, Stan was going till 5 or 6 and he was up, up dancing on stage with two, <laughs> two, 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 two scotches in his hands, you know? And I thought, and I think Stan was about 86 or something at the time and I thought, this is, Stan is the man, that's why he's called the man, you know? Um, so, so anyway, to go back to it, like Stan said to me, hey, it's really great, you know, I was doing Ultimates, Ultimate X-Men, and I was doing a crossover series called Ultimate War, and uh, I think I actually had four books in the top five the month that I was talking to Stan on the phone, and I remember feeling very proud of myself, and like, yeah, this is pretty amazing, and I'm like, you know, and Stan said to me, yeah, it's, it's great, you know, he says, but why don't you just create your own characters, and he said, you doing this is like me doing Batman and Superman, instead of creating the Marvel Universe, he said, why don't you create your own stuff, and he said, I, I can't remember his exact words, but the, the, the sense of it was pop culture atrophies if we don't have new things coming in. You know, so imagine Stan had just written Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes and Superman instead of creating Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. And I thought, oh my God, you know, it's kind of your responsibility as, as somebody who works in comics to create some new stuff. So I, I literally went off I mean, and, and did want it, just did it almost immediately. And, uh, and, and then I also noticed like, when I was at Marvel, I was seeing things that we were doing um, being used in the Marvel movies. I mean, I saw the stuff at early stages because I was doing some consultancy work for them. And I thought, I could just do this myself. You know, I could just create my own characters. And, you know, a lot of the stuff from Ultimates would be in maybe Hulk or, you know, the second Hulk movie or the first Captain America movie. And, you know, I saw the plans for the Avengers very early on. And Zach Penn said to me, oh, there's a lot of stuff from Ultimates here. And I thought, do you know what? I'm I'm just going to do this myself. You know, so it was quite a big step, you know, but I just... So I jumped and I was getting paid more than I'd ever been paid in my life. You know, Bendis and I were on these amazing rates at Marvel. And I just thought, I'm going to take the risk and work for nothing for a year, you know. And I went off and I did these books full time, which was thinking back insane, you know. But um, but it worked out, you know. It was, uh, I'm still doing the same job, but, but I own everything now, which is fantastic. You know, the artist and I... 50-50 on every one of these things where a generation before this would all have been owned by Marvel and DC, which would have been heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. It's, so do you see, is the, is the door shut on working for those guys again or would you do it for fun? I do it for fun. You know, like, um, it's funny. I mean, I was talking to Dan DiDio, uh last week and I really like that. And I'm, I'm still great friends with the Marvel guys as well, you know, and, and I've talked to both of them at some point about doing something. I think it would be at least a year or two away because... I think we're shooting three films next year and I'm, I'm doing the sequel comics to a lot of those films and everything. So just time-wise. But, you know, 
if you've ever had a Batman costume as a kid or a Spider-Man mask or something, you know, it never leaves you. It's always there. It's, uh, you can't really see it as like graduation, you know, although from a business point of view and a creative point of view, it can be, you know, but there is always that part of you that I'm excited to see Batman versus Superman, even if it there's an excellent chance it'll be crap, you know. But like, <laughs> you know, but I'm still kind of excited, you know. That's the industry and, viewpoint, eh? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm excited about Civil War and everything, you know. And uh, like, I, I th- there is that inner fanboy that just must be fed occasionally. And you know, the idea of doing a big Justice League project or a big Batman project with Steve McNevin or you know whoever Sean Murphy or something, you know, Frank Quitely and I doing an Aquaman series or something like I keep a notebook and I, and I have done for, for years where if an idea for an Aquaman story pops into my head, I write it down and I've got them all, you know I mean? There's, I've, I've got a great Green Lantern story, you know? So, I mean, at some point I'll definitely dip in and, and have a shot, but I would only do like a one-off big thing with a really great artist, you know, and I, I definitely do plan to them. I, one of the things that's really interesting talking to you, and I've heard this with other things, is that uh, either you're very good at presenting a version of yourself or you seem extremely <laughs> unjaded about this. You're still enthusiastic about the same sort of concepts that you have been. Oh, my God. I mean, the only way... <laughs> the, only, <laughs> the only way you could get jaded is if you're having a bad time. I mean, I, I sort of get that. Like, you know, at the end of Raging Bull, De Niro is jaded sitting on that chair. <laughs> you know, it's like, I get it, though, because, you know, that, that's, that's when it hasn't worked. But but it's impossible to be jaded when you're doing what you wanted to do. Like I said, when I was five and hand-drawing individual lashes and these things. So, I mean, the idea that I get to play with this stuff and make up stories and that people buy it, I mean, my God, it's incredible. Or to walk on a movie set and see what was a drawing suddenly become a thing somebody spent 80 million of their own money on is, is just nuts. You know, I mean, I think I feel like the least jaded person I know, you know, because I, I love doing what I do. You know? I think that's got to be part of the gift for uh, being good at this job, I think. <laughs> I think the minute you don't like it, you should never do anything. You know, I mean, if, if there's anything in your life that feels toxic, mm-hmm. I think, you know, you, you should remove it. You know, it's like if something, if something, if, if, you, if you dread the alarm going in the morning, you're, you're in the wrong job. You yeah. Know? Yeah, you can say no. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Um, I think that's about that's about all that I have. I think we touched on a lot of the books that you've got going on. I know um, you've got a you've got a new book coming out later this fall, Huck with uh, Raphael Albuquerque. Um, yeah, it always looks like I've got tons of stuff, but it's only because they're, they're finite. You know, like every one of the books wraps up after a few months. Like Chrononauts, I did earlier this year, so we'll get the book out in. September, yeah, like the 9th of September. Mm-hmm. Then October, we've got the first volume of Jupiter's Circle, which is the prequel to Jupiter's Legacy, and that's been collected now. And then November is Huck. And uh, Rafa and I have just had a ball on this. I mean, I, I wrote the whole series six months ago. I wrote it. My new philosophy, so the books always come out in time, is to write them a year before they come out and have them all drawn before I start publishing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing. It's worked wonders this year because the books come out on time. But Rafa's amazing. And I, I checked out with Scott Snyder before he and I were working together because I didn't want to mess with the American vampire schedule but Raph is so fast he can draw two books a month it's, it's fantastic it's so great I mean this is like imagine me working with Frank Quitely and Brian Hitch and everyone and then suddenly with a guy who can draw two books a month it's like it's, it's amazing it must, it must be like going from black and white to color it just, it just like, oh this is what cocaine must feel like yeah. <laughs> do you still get that feeling when you get pages in your in your email that come in uh, some things genuinely 
really excite me in the mornings. Like when I switch on my computer and you know you see your emails loading in from the night before. And if I see something from Frank Quitely or I see something from Sean Murphy or something, I'm like, yes. And I just even if I'm holding the baby or something, I'll drop the baby, you know, kind of thing. And I'll just if I'm if it's an early morning feed or something, I'm like, oh. And I, I pounce on it, you know, and I, I, I soak it up. And then what I do, and every one of my friends at work will confirm this, what I do is I forward it to almost everyone I know. <laughs> and it sounds insane, you know, but like um, all the guys I work with, plus school friends or whatever, if there's six pages in from Frank Quietly or something, the, there's about maybe 20 or 30 comic professionals who are really good friends of mine who I send these pages out all the time. And, and they're actually because I generally work with really good guys they are interested you know they're like oh this is really cool and they'll send it to Frank a nice note and everything as well um, but I even send it to school pals and neighbours and things. I'm like check out the perspective on panel two like, yeah. we don't know yeah we don't care just please please uh, can we block you on email you know but but I uh, yeah I love it when that stuff comes in the other thing that's exciting is somebody who you, you loved as a kid coming through like Mark Hamill emailing me is another really exciting email to get as well. So like Frank Quitely Art and Mark Hamill emails come through. That's that's a buzz. That's not bad work if you can get it. Oh my god! If, you, if you'd have told me when I was seven that I'd be having to be a real Skywalker when I'm older and hanging around a bit with them, you know, I'm off to LA in three weeks' time and I'm going to buzz Mark and his family up when I'm there. You know, like uh, I mean, that, that's that's like dream come true stuff. Sometimes I do worry that I banged my head about fifteen years ago and I'm actually vegetating somewhere, you know, and I'm hallucinating all of this because it is. It is kind of like the most fun stuff I can imagine. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's the case, just let it ride. Yeah, just don't wake me up. Don't wake me on the machine. It's that's totally no, no by mouth. No by mouth. <laughs> uh, well, well, thanks so much. It was uh, a lot of fun to talk to you. You too. Thanks very much. And there we have it. I think that was a pretty great conversation uh, with Mr. Mark Miller. Uh, you can find him over at MillerWorld.com and uh, follow him, uh, Mr. Mark Miller, on Twitter. And uh, make sure to check out his comics and see his movies. And uh, There's a lot of stuff that he's putting out is what I'm saying. Uh, you can also get over to iFanboy.com. You can follow us at uh, iFanboy on Twitter, uh, Facebook.com slash iFanboy. You can go find uh, the old video show where we had uh, Mark Miller on, I think with Tony Harris, uh, way back when they were, they were doing their War Heroes tour because we've been around a very long time. Well, that's all. Thanks very much, uh, and thanks for listening. Bye.